Today's passage is going to be uh, Luke chapter 20, starting at verse 45. Not a super long one today, just a few verses. <clears throat> so, uh, Luke 20, 45. And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes, who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. Oh, church, it is sweet to be with you. I have not, my family and I, because of sickness and travel, have not been together for about six weeks together as a, as a family at these gatherings. And it's been about four weeks since I've been in the pulpit. I just thank you so much for your prayers. Um, Many of you guys know that you guys were praying for me as I traveled to Hume Lake Christian Camp in California um, for a week serving there, preaching through the book of Jonah. And then I came back just in time to get COVID. And so I missed you guys that week here. And then I was healed up just enough to fly out to Hume, New England and serve in Massachusetts, preaching through the book of Jonah. And man, God did some really sweet things. Thank you for praying. Um, many, many put their trust in Jesus for the first time. Um, many students repented and shared things and connected with their leaders. One of the cool things about these camps is that you can only come if you're connected to a local church. And so there's discipleship baked in. And so many churches were strengthened. Leaders were strengthened. I was able to pour into different youth pastors and it was really fruitful. So thank you for your prayers. And But I'm very excited to be back with you. I'm very, very honored to open up God's word. Man, God's word is powerful, and God has been working in my heart as I've been in this. And, and so let me just transition now to our passage. Um, but before I do, let me just make a preliminary com um, comment. You know, if you look at popular media, social media or news media, the picture that you have when it comes to thinking about the church in America is a church that is largely full of hypocrites and cares very little about the neglected in our society. And the reality is that stereotype exists for a reason. And I grew up in the church, and at a young age, I, uh, I, I started to see some of these realities. And when I first became a Christian when I was 15, uh, I, I went under the impression that my church was perfect. And I remember even arguing with this one girl on the bus when I was 15. She was an atheist. And I said, if you could only just come to my church, you'll get it. <laughs> it's the perfect church. And, and as I matured in the Lord, I started to see huge gaps in what I saw Jesus teach and what the church was living out. I saw deep gaps when it comes to hypocrisy. Uh, reality of just neglecting those that the world neglected. And, and like most young people, 
and it's the case of most immature people, is that instead of saying, let me help redeem it, help me change it, I, I just rejected it. I was like, man, the church is trash. The institution of the church is just, is a wreck. It's beyond redemption. And so I, I went down a path of hating on the church for many years and trying to redeem the church through just starting my own stuff and own grassroots movement. But what I started to understand is I started reading through the Bible over and over again. And what I learned is that the church is God's plan. It's option A and there's no option B. And as ugly as the bride can be and as hypocritical, this is God's choice. This is Jesus's bride. And if we actually understand what the Bible teaches and what Jesus actually says and we take it to heart, we cannot be characteristically a proud church. We cannot characteristically be hypocritical and neglect the vulnerable in our society. And so my question for us this morning is what if our church, what is the APC, what if Lebanon Lutheran, we could be different? What if we were characterized by authenticity and compassion? And when the watching world talks about our churches, they'll say, man, have you seen that church and how they care for others? You'd see how honest and humble and how authentic they are. And so today, we get the privilege of going to Jesus's heart. We get to see his word and we get to know more about what he cares about so that we can then reflect and become what he's called us to be as a church. So let's look at Luke, uh, Luke chapter 20, verse 45. Some of you may are probably more familiar with Matthew 23. It's G, uh, Matthew's version of this account, which is a lot longer, uh, but this one is has a unique focus that we're going to see. Luke 20, verse 45. In the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at feasts. Now, when I first read this passage in high school, I remember just, oh, man, those, those Pharisees, those scribes, they're so wicked. And I was so jarred because I was talking to one of my mentors and he said, you know, the more and more I read these passages, the more and more I see my own heart in these. And I was like, what? How could you say that? Right? Which is another mark of the immature because the immature and, and the new in faith often could only see other people's sins, but they can't see ours, their own. And as I've grown into this world, the more and more I realize that my mentor's words are very true. That the more and more I walk with Jesus, the more I see the heart of the, the Pharisees in my own heart. Jesus here knows that. So he's not just addressing the, the scribes and the Pharisees. In fact, if you look at verse 45, what does it say? In the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples. He's speaking to his disciples, warning them, but he's also speaking to the larger crowd. And I think that's important because the word he uses here is beware. Beware in the present tense. What does that mean? It means it's a constant temptation that we have to watch out for as his people. So what Jesus is trying to do, he's trying to set a, establish a different kind of leadership culture, church culture, in contrast to the world's culture. He's trying to establish a different ethic, a different culture of how we're going to talk about and walk as leaders. But this is not just for leaders. This is for all of us. Remember, he's speaking to all people, all people's church. See, it just works all the time, our name, all right? All people. But when you look at the very things that he highlights that they care about, look at it. They like to walk around and ropes. I mean, I don't really like that, but they love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats. I mean, who doesn't like that? That sounds pretty appealing, right? See, but the key that we see in this passage is not, not, not if the people honor you or not, but, but what is your heart motivation behind what you do? Why do you do what you do, especially within the religious sphere? 
Why do you do what you do? And what we're going to see that Jesus issue has an issue with a few matters of the scribes and the Pharisees and the, the surrounding culture that follows them, but they all have the same root issue. And that's a small view of God, a big view of people, and a heart that is hungry and seeking self-glory. So number one, they like to walk around in log robes. Now the question you could ask is, what's wrong with a little fashion? Right? What's wrong with wearing long robes? Well, Matthew's version of this passage gives us a little bit of insight. Matthew 23, verse 5. They do all their deeds. Why? To be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. In, in other words, they had these religious garments that have Bible verses and they would have these giant, I mean, imagine this giant box on your forehead that had God's word, the Shema in it, right? But they, they wanted to make it extra big so that people can notice them. Why? To be seen by others. Jesus sees the hearts of men. He knows their motivations. Why are they wearing what they're wearing and doing what they're doing? Because they want to be seen by others. They have the opposite heart of King David, who says in in Psalm 27, 4, many of you are familiar with this, one thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord and all the days of my life to gaze upon his beauty. Inquire in his temple. Instead of aiming to see God, these leaders, they want to be seen by man. So the question for all of us this morning and all the time, we should ask ourselves, do we want to be seen or do we want to see? Do you want to see? Are you here this morning on church to see or to be seen? And in a few weeks when we celebrate Easter, we all dress up in our Easter beds. Do you want to be seen or do you want to see him? Still dress up, that's fine. But again, the heart, the heart is everything. Number two, they sought glory for themselves. It would be customary in their culture for them to walk in the midst of the marketplace and they would part the people like Moses. If they were sitting, they would stand in respect. I mean, who would not feel pretty good about that? And you can imagine for many of these leaders, it would be an addicting, power-hungry kind of, it would feed this ego, this addicting perk of their power and their honor. And they would crave this attention. Instead of receiving this as an honor for their service, they craved it. They demanded it. They were the type of person who were were doctors. And if you ever called them without saying doctor, they'd be like, Dr. Sam. (laughs) They demanded respect instead of inspiring respect. And whenever they would go to a house party or a wedding or a feast, they would make sure they sit at the head of the table, the, the seat of prominence, so they can be seen by man. And why does Jesus have such an issue with this very understandable glory seeking that all of us have seen in our own selves as well? Well, there's a number of problems that fundamentally, instead of seeking glory for God, they sought glory for self. Some, some people have called this being a glory thief. They were being a glory thief. They were stealing that which belongs only rightly for God. So when they would leave an interaction with someone, their their thoughts would probably be, oh, I hope they had a good impression of me, or I hope they love me more. Instead, their thinking should have been, oh, I hope they see God more clearly. I hope they love God more, and oh, what it would be like if our church had that same culture, that every time you interacted with someone, you walked away thinking, man, I hope they see Christ a little bit more. 
And oh, that all of our leaders would have that heart, that you would walk away from this interaction. As I'm preaching God's word, my heart as a leader would say, oh, I hope they see Christ more, not oh, I hope they think what a great savior, what a great preacher I am, but what a great savior we have, right? And that, that, that is one of the cures for us to cure us from this hypocrisy that plagues us as churches, is that our heart's aim and, and, and all that we do is that I hope they see God more. Let me share a few immediate applications. We often see this reality in our churches. If you grew up in church, you've been around church for a number of years, have you seen this? People seeking their own glory but guising it with religious language. They want to be a pastor or a leader or head of a committee or sing on stage. But at the core of their hearts is they want to be seen. They're a glory thief. They want glory and honor for themselves. They're not zealous for God's glory. They're zealous for their own glory. And if you believe and you're like, yeah, I know those people. Yeah, right there. I'm married to one, right? If you have your instinct is to point fingers or think in your mind, I hope so-and-so is here here, listening to the sermon. Let me just ask you this so you're not letting yourself off the hook. How would you feel... If there was someone in this church that you served tirelessly, you discipled, you prayed for, you brought them meals, you wept with them, and then one day at one of our gatherings or membership meetings, that person shares a testimony. And they just go down the list of all the people. Susie Q, John Doe, all these people serve me in my dire need, and they forget to mention you. How do you feel? serve them more than all of them put together. And you, you see that little exercise that shows us a little glimpse that our motivations for service is not always so pure. And what if someone else gets recognition for being good at something that you think you're better at at the church? Oh, so-and-so, brother, brother or sister, so-and-so is so gifted and such a servant. And you're thinking, I'm much of a servant than them. Why am I up there getting the glory? Right? All these things are little glimpses that our hearts cannot, are not always so pure. All of these temptations are especially relevant in our today's, today's culture, our selfie social media driven culture. And I get that in this room there's a spectrum of social media usage. But whether you're on Instagram, diarying everything that you do every day, or if you're never on social media, you know what? You're still being influenced and shaped by this cultural, cultural wind. Self-promotion. One of the greatest temptations for all of us, whether before the advent of social media or right now in the midst of this craziness of social media, is that we are tempted to become our own public relations team. You know what you do when you're a corporation that has a terrible image or a celebrity that just keeps getting in trouble? What do you do? You hire a public relations firm so that they can curate the right image of, your, of yourself towards the world. To post the right things, to say the right thing, perfectly curate your outward appearance so that those around you can see you the way you want them to see you. And that is one of the most, the greatest dangers for ours, that we will curate our lives so that people may see our marriage in a certain way or our devotional life. Oh, coffee in the word in the morning. Look at me and my devotional, right? Or, or, or our marriage is so nice and look at us. We're on this nice trip and we're so happy and we never fight. Or, or our parenting, we never get mad at our kids. Look at how nice and neat our home is or our kids are and they're so well behaved. 
We're all tempted to this, to be our own public relations team, perfectly curating, self-seeking our own glory so everyone can see us the way we want them to see us. See, and that's why Jesus is not just calling out the scribes and the Pharisees, he's also calling out his disciples, because he knows this is the temptation they'll have. Now, I'm not saying that ever sharing something with your friends or social media is inherently evil. It's mostly evil. (laughs) I still use it. But however, the issue is that we have just often as a church accepted the norms of the world and have uncritically just received it. And if everyone else does it, then we should do it. If everyone posts, then we should post. If everyone constantly updates their home, then we should do it. Because that's what people do. Right? And I'm not saying you shouldn't do any of those things. What I'm saying is that we got to pause and say, why are we doing this? Are we trying to keep up with the Joneses? Are we trying to create an appearance? Why are we doing this? Have we prayed about it? Why are you posting that? Do you have to say that? Why do you want to say that? Do you want likes and comments for your own glory and to fill up your own insecurities? Are you doing it for the glory of God? All these questions are hard. And I don't know the answer for all of us at all times. But you, we have to ask ourselves these questions. And one great remedy within the church that we can fight against this hypocrisy that we're all tend tend towards, all this this self-curating is this. The next time someone asks you how you're doing, tell them the truth. (laughs) Don't just say fine or good. Shock them by actually giving them the answer. You know, you're like, hey, how are you doing? And you're like, well, actually, not very good. My marriage is not doing so well. I haven't prayed much lately. I'm kind of bitter and cynical towards God. And they're like, whoa, what are you doing? I didn't mean to ask you that question. I'm just asking because that's politically proper and polite. I want you guys, I want to challenge you the next time someone asks you that question to actually answer it and make them mean it in the future. Seriously. Be honest with them. You know what? This morning, my entire family and I, we all argued with each other at different times. We bickered. It was, it was terrible. We're driving in the car like, ah, on the way to church. And you, guys know what, you guys know what I'm talking about? The, the, the terrible drive to church with, you know, and we're just praying. I'm like, God, the enemy is attacking us right before I preach the word. And man, my heart was so ugly. I fought with Joanna about coffee this morning. About coffee, right? And how refreshing would it be is if you guys asked me, Sam, Pastor Sam, how are you doing? I'm like, terrible. We just thought about coffee, right? And you know what that does? The more you answer those questions authentically, it does gives permission for other people to be real. And then once we start operating at that level, then we, we actually solve the big marital crisis that comes two years from now because we stop the trajectory now instead of waiting for these things. You know what I'm saying? So start asking the question and meaning it and start being honest with the answer. Question, answer. Okay. Number three, let's look at the final rebuke of Jesus for his leaders. 20, verse 47. They devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater commendation, condemnation. So they're feeding on the sheep instead of feeding the sheep. Now let's talk about widows for a second. Throughout all history, not just this culture, widows have been some of the most vulnerable in society. Because of the systems of how it was in our most cultures, if you lost your husband and didn't have sons to work, you would have no stable income. And often the land that you was rightfully yours would be seized and taken by other people. You were at the mercy of the generosity of other people. But because in most of cultures, the world's way is this. Might makes right. Might makes right. And so those who are mighty would take away from those who had none like widows but God 
If you read the Old Testament, it talks about widows over 60 times. Or throughout the whole Bible, 60 times. God created a special system to care for the vulnerable in our society in such a way that would reflect his heart so that the watching world, the pagan world, would look at, the, look at Israel and say, wow, God is real. God is generous. God is caring. God cares about those that no one else cares about. And although there were short seasons where Israel lived out this justice, lived out this mercy, lived out this care for all social groups, the majority of the history was neglecting and becoming just like the world, ignoring who the world ignored, ignoring whom those they deemed inconvenient for them or a drain on their society. And first in line to be accountable for their neglect and abuse was the leaders. And as the leaders went, so did the people. So Jesus highlights that these religious leaders devoured widows' houses. Opposed to what Ezekiel 34 talks about, the shepherds should be feeding the sheep. They were eating the sheep for themselves. So it's likely that these religious leaders would act as if they would care for these widows. And hey, I'll, I'll take care of your estate. I know that's all complicated for you, and I'll take care of it. But, but in doing so, they would, they would steal and, and take unjust amounts for their own selves. So their supposed charity was just a lie to line up their own pocket. And outwardly, people may even praise these leaders. Oh, you're so generous taking care of sister so-and-so after she lost her husband. You're taking care of her estate. Wow, you're so generous and thoughtful. But in doing so, they were actually just caring for themselves. They got leadership backwards. And instead of considering themselves for the benefit of others, they considered other people their own benefit. So how many people in this church have been guilty of what the religious leaders did to compensate for their lack of care. So instead of caring for the people, they would make long prayers, long theological, theologically rich, eloquent prayers full of scripture to be seen by man. So instead of caring for people, they're like, God, instead of caring for people like you've commanded, let me just not care and let me just make these long prayers so people can see how spiritual I am. And how many in the church have also done this? Some of us love to hear the sound of our own voice. It's the sweetest sound in the world. We love to dominate prayer times with our theological prowess and how educated we are. We're quoting scripture and we know all this stuff. But our heart's aim is not to love God, to please God, but to impress other people. On the other hand, there are some of us here who never pray in groups because you are afraid of what people think. You're afraid that your prayers won't be good enough. You're afraid. And for both people, whether the person who loves to dominate and pray long prayers for their own glory or the person who never prays out loud, the same heart issue is there, just manifested differently. Both have a wrong view of God, small view of God, a big view of man, and both are looking to man to give them what only God can give them. So whether you're the person who prays all the time and dominates prayer time, or you never say a word because you're afraid of what people think, both of us need our hearts changed and reoriented towards God. Both of us need God to change us. Now, what will Jesus do with all this kind of hypocrisy? Will he just let it go? Verse 47. These people, they will receive the greater condemnation. There's a lot to say here, but to be brief... If you've ever been abused or neglected by anybody in leadership, whether government, school, work, or the church, 
take heart. God knows, he sees it, and he will not let them off the hook. In his time, in his way, they will be held accountable. You can take God at his word there. And so much in our culture is us trying to take that into our own hands. You trust the Lord, he will hold me accountable if I wrong you. He will. Do you really believe in God's word that he, I will receive the greater condemnation? The greater commendation. Why do I say commendation? Maybe that's my flesh trying to change it. <laughs> I will receive the greater blessing. I will receive the greater condemnation. I will. You trust God that he will. Even if I seem like I can get away with it in the short term. Or that person gets away in the short term. Now, we're going to move on to another scene. But it's actually directly connected. If you read the next section quickly, you may think it's completely unrelated and it's a new system, but it's actually connected. In contrast to these hypocritical glory thieves that are the leaders in the, the, the community of Israel at that point, Jesus is going to contrast them with this pure, devoted widow who has a true heart for God. Now look at verse, 21, uh, verse 1 with me, chapter 21. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. Okay, so these, there are about 13 offering bo boxes in the court, in the temple, one of the courts. And what people do is would put their offerings into these, these free will offerings, so did it out of their own heart, put it into these offering boxes to support the temple. Now, the thing that was interesting about these boxes is that they were designed in such a way where they were shaped and they were made out of metal to where when you would put money in there, and it wouldn't be cash or checks, it would be metal, if you put it in there, it would make a loud noise, which is maybe what Jesus meant in Matthew chapter 6 when he says, beware when you give your gift to make, you know, blow the trumpets, to let everyone know you're giving. Because what they would do is, uh, the rich would empty out their money into the temple box. And it would just make a loud, clanging bell noise throughout the whole temple courts. Look at me! I'm so generous to the Lord. The, the rich would drop their money in such a way that everyone would see them. Know how generous and holy they are. And maybe we, we have that challenge here, you know. We, you're like, you know, <laughs> you know, but in contrast to the rich, Jesus notices a poor widow, Luke 21, two, and he saw a poor widow who put in two small copper coins. How much were these two small crop, copper coins or, or um, mites that you may have had in your translation? Well, each was worth one one hundredth of a denarius. Now, what's a denarius? A denarius is what a day laborer would get after a day's work. So, one one hundredth of a denarius is about five minutes of labor. That's what you would get for five minutes of labor. One mite. So, she has two of them. So, so imagine two pennies. Okay? Two pennies. That's all she has. She gives it this gift. And if I, if I throw those pennies, did any of you guys like jump out of your chair for that <laughs> right you guys are like ugh, pennies i hate change i only use credit card right i mean that's that's how we feel towards two pennies that's all she had that's all she had you can imagine as she's standing in line and she gives her gifts some rich people watch and say <laughs> what are you doing don't even bother 
giving two mites to God. <laughs> Look at us with these. We, we got a truckload of money we're giving away. But, but what Jesus says in response is shocking. Look at verse 3. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. <laughs> Man may not have heard her gift as she put her two mites into those loud offering boxes, but God did. More than all of them put together. How is that possible? Really, Jesus? More than all of them? That's two, two mites, two pennies? Really, more than all of the thousands of dollars or more that those people gave? Well, Jesus gives a reason in verse 4. He starts the sentence off saying four. So it gives us the reason. Verse 4. For they all, the rich, contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. In other words, the rich gave out of their surplus. They gave out of their couch money what they could find. They had plenty where that came from. It did not affect their lifestyles one bit. They gave while they were rich and they were continually rich after they gave. On the other hand, the widow gave and she had nothing left. How could this widow be so generous? How could she be so recklessly generous? See, widows, as we talked about are in a very vulnerable state throughout most of world history. But widows in the Gospel of Luke especially are often highlighted for how devoted they were to God. See, there's something about being in a completely vulnerable, weakened, dependent state that can do two things to your heart. Either it produces in you a heart of cynicism, doubt, bitterness towards God for putting you in such a vulnerable position, or it produces in you Deep roots in trusting God and his control and his sovereignty and his love and his care. And I think this widow, instead of becoming an old, bittered, embittered person, actually the vulnerability and the hardships of her life tenderized her heart towards God, made her more in love with God, more devoted to God, more trusting of God. And so we want to ask ourselves this, are the gifts that you give to our church and as we give to others, are they valuable in God's eyes? Are your gifts valuable in God's eyes? Let me explain. What I mean by that is that according to this passage, and if you study 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, the measure of how generous you are is not how much you actually give numerically, but how much you have left. It's not how much you give, but how much, how costly it was to you. So just like in every church in the world, our church here, there are some of you who give more than others. And though you may numerically give more than the average member here, you may be giving the least in God's eyes. God knows our hearts and he knows the complexities of our situations. I don't know, but he knows what it costs us. And so though your gifts may impress man, you may, it may even impress the leaders here and the finance team. It may not impress God. See, there are some of our church whose gifts make up very little of the percentage of the total that we have at our church, church offerings. But in God's eyes, they're huge. They're the biggest. And if that's you, thank you so much. If we accept the truth that Scripture teaches that it's more blessed to give than to receive, then this passage is such good news for the poor. Because you know what it teaches? That no one is too poor to give. Amen. 
No one is too poor to give generously. Isn't that great news? You could statistically make the least out of everybody at our church and yet be the most generous of our church. Only in God's economy. Isn't that crazy? Imagine if Bill Gates became a Christian and joined our church. You could outgive Bill Gates in God's economy. That cool? So listen, brother or sister who gives so faithfully at great cost yourself, and no one knows the sacrifices you make. You know, no one knows the uncertainty you can put yourself in sometimes when you give. No one knows your heart, the cost, the pain. God does, and He will reward you in due season. That's good news. That no one here is too poor to be generous. And so for us who make a lot according to the Western standards, because reality, all of us here are rich according to the world and according to world history. No matter what you do, if you make a lot or make a little according to our Western standards, you can be extravagantly generous. To bring that home, let me ask a question I asked a few months ago when I preached on the rich young ruler. Let me ask you this. Does your giving regularly disrupt the preferred life you want to live? Does your giving regularly disrupt the preferred life you want to live? This is an important question to ask because it's not ultimately about our church being financially viable. It's about how do you measure your treasure? If we say that Jesus is our ultimate treasure, then how do you measure if that is actually true? Well, you do it by measuring your generosity your time, your attention, your affection, and how you spend the money God has entrusted you. What is truly our treasure? Is it our hobbies, our relationships, our homes, all good things, vacations, good food? All these things are good God-given things, but if they became primary, then we've lost the sight of our treasure, and the way you spend your money is a direct line and measure of your treasure. So that's why, as a pastor, I am so zealous for you to be generous with your money. See, I, I get reports of the financial giving of our church, and when I see that people don't give for months or years on end, or they give very little compared to how much they make, I'm saddened. Not because I, I lose out on more salary, because the Lord takes care of me, regardless of what I get paid here, He will take care of us. Or because I want our church to make a lot of money, I'm zealous and saddened because I want you to abound and, and, and treasuring Jesus more than anything else. And when I see members who don't give, that makes me sad because they're missing out on the greatest treasure. That is a very strong sign and a flag that something is misaligned in their heart and their priorities. I want you to know that. I don't, I don't care that you give so I can make a lot of money. I did not become a pastor to make money, okay? I can make money in other ways. I want your heart to be rightly aligned in the priorities of, the, of eternity. I'm zealous for that for you. Okay. Though I believe the widow's heart here is to be commended, I think Jesus is commending her. I actually don't think Jesus was excited about this situation. I don't think Jesus was excited about the scene he was seeing, even though he commends her pure heart. Let me... Let me a question came to my mind this week as I was studying this passage that I've never considered is this. Why does this woman have only two mites left? Why does she have only two pennies left? If one of you guys were to give two pennies and you said to me, that's all I have, I'm going to be like, well, we've got to have a conversation here. Why in the world do you have two pennies left? 
What is going on? What We failed you if you have two pennies left. You see, this is exhibit A of the failure of the religious system at that time. Do you remember the last time Luke talked about widows? I just said it earlier. Luke 20, verse 47. These scribes and Pharisees, they devour widows' houses. And so this is exhibit A of a woman who has been neglected and abused by the religious system where the, the rich, the rich and the, the powerful, the, the leaders neglected those that everyone else neglected. And so this woman is a product of the brokenness of that system. You see, the widow giving two mites is actually not something to celebrate. We can celebrate her heart, but the fact she's in that situation is a, is, is, is a scene to be mourned, to be lamented. If one of you in our church, one of our members, gave two pennies, that's all you had left, I would feel like I failed as a pastor if I wasn't in your life to care for you, if you were in that situation. Something is wrong if you're in that situation. And so this is actually both a commendation, but also a condemnation to the whole system. This woman should have been cared for and cherished as a daughter of God, but she was left out on the curb. Now, I, I admit for us to apply this is, is not always so straightforward because I doubt most of us are not directly devouring the estates of widows. We have social security nets and different things like that that would be foreign in Jesus' day. But just like in, this, in their society, they neglected those who wouldn't directly benefit, so do we. So do we. Uh, you know, I, I think about high school. You know, I, I've been thinking about high school, middle school a lot because I've been doing this camp preaching and thinking about what they struggle with. And I think they struggle with the same things we do. Do you remember in middle school and high school, every single time you would interact with a kid, maybe, maybe you weren't like this, but maybe this is just me. Every time you interact with a new kid, you would quickly size up, would you be good for my social standing? Are you in the cool camp or the, the, you know, the, the, the bad camp? Will you advantage me in my interactions with you? Will you inconvenience me? Are you awkward? Are you popular? Are you gifted? If you are, I'll latch on to you and be really nice. If you're not, I will neglect you. And I was thinking, man, middle schoolers and high schoolers are the worst. They do that all the time. And then I was thinking, man, I do that. We do that as adults, don't we? We size up people. Are you going to be complicated for my life? Are you going to be awkward? Are you hard for me socially? Are you going to be a drain on me financially? Isn't that how the world treats everybody And so, church, we have an opportunity to redeem what the world does. Who are the widows in our community? So we used to talk about the forgotten four when we first planted the church. The widow, the foreigner, the poor, and the orphan. These people are all around us in our community, and some are within our community. And the way we treat them is a direct representation of how much we understand and receive the gospel, and a direct reflection of God's heart. See, when they look at the church and the way we relate with each other, the world is giving a, getting an accurate or inaccurate view of God's heart and what he's like. So how much do we notice those the world has forgotten? Jesus has not forgotten them, so neither should we. Church, one of the benefits of us gathering with Lebanon Lutheran as we go through this stage two wrestling, if God has us come together, is that we have the opportunity to actually care for widows. We've been praying for older saints for years, and now we have a lot of them. <laughs> there are actual widows here. There are some here who lost their husbands literally in the last two years. 
And though our culture tends to neglect these widows, we can opt to be different. We can surround ourselves with those that the world avoids. I want to make a challenge for all the members at APC to befriend, pray for, get to know, love, serve a widow, a real widow. And those who are like widows, the poor, the foreigner, the orphan, the socially outcast among us, may there never be a day where there's someone among us who has only two pennies left. May we care for each other in such a way that the world says, hey, did you hear about that church? They actually care about people. There is no one with need in that church because they care for each other so authentically and lovingly. We could be that. We could actually be that church. Church, if our religion does not produce that kind of care, then what do we have the real thing? I mean, James chapter 1, verse 21 says this very, very directly. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unsane from the world. Church, if we do not, are not characterized over the seasons as a church that cares for the widows and the orphan, then we don't have the real thing. Can I just say that straightforward? We don't have the real thing. We've forgotten something. So how do we become such a community? Because what I'm saying is impossible. Both a community full of authentic Christians who are are not proud, not self-serving, not doing things for their own glory, not glory thieves, but also abounding in compassion for those that everyone else cares little for. How is this possible? Well, it's not. It's not possible on our own. How do we do this, church? We daily return to the basics of our faith. We daily preach the gospel to ourselves and to each other, reminding ourselves that, church, while we were still sinners, while we were hostile to God, Christ Jesus died for us. That while we were glory thieves, wanting nothing but our own glory, Jesus laid down his divine privileges. He took the form of a slave, lived a selfless life, always living for the glory of the Father and not for himself, always caring perfectly for the neglected and the vulnerable, always seeking the good for others. And instead of us being punished on the cross, Jesus substitutes himself and dies like he's a glory thief, dies like he neglects and he's selfish, dies like he's the most greedy person who ever lived. That's the beauty of the gospel, is that Jesus was treated like a glory thief on the cross so that you and I can be treated like sons and daughters. And, 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 the, and not just forgiveness of sins and peace with God, Jesus, God goes a step further and he treats us, considers us as if all we ever did was live generously. All we ever did was seek out the glory of God instead of the opposite of what you and I have done. And even more, we get to be adopted as children to the most generous father ever. And we get to reign with him forever on a renewed earth where there's no suffering, no more widows, no more neglected, no more poor, no more foreigners, no one neglected. Isn't, isn't that amazing? That is the future, and that's where we're heading. And so church, if you daily behold the gospel and open up God's word and see God and search, search the scriptures to see him, it will progressively transform our hearts. Notice I said the word progressively. Not perfectly, but truly. Progressively. It will transform our hearts from a heart that is prone towards using others and abusing others with our power to a heart that is prone towards considering others more important than ourselves. 
It will progressively transform our hearts that are prone to be greedy and trying to have enough for ourselves to be extravagantly generous towards others. It will progressively transform our hearts to be prone to the endless pursuit of self-glory and PR management for ourselves to the joyous pursuit of pointing and being happy to point to others, pointing to Christ as the glorious one. If you are not seeing these fruits progressively growing in your life, you have lost something. You have missed out on these basic truths. Either you've never received it once or you're a Christian and you've forgotten these truths. So if that's you, today you can be refreshed in these truths. Freshly repent of your glory-thieving ways. Freshly, rep freshly repent of your neglect for the widow, the poor, the foreigner, the orphan. And if you've never put your hope in Jesus... If you've never put your hope in his life, death, and resurrection for you, today could be, today's the great day to do that. To receive this gracious, generous, extravagant God. And if that's you and you're not sure you have peace with God, you're not sure he's your, your, your sacrifice for your sins, then come talk to me or another member and share of your situation. We want to walk with you what it looks like to walk in this. But church, let us be that church that walks in authenticity, is honest with each other, is not seeking our own glory, and that no one will be neglected in our community. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for these truths. Thank you, Jesus, that we are only doing that which you have done to us. You are not calling us like a harsh taskmaster to do something that you are too stingy and too selfish to do. You are calling us and welcoming us into the very reality of your own heart. There is no one generous like you. There's no one more thoughtful and caring like you. Help us be what you are to us, Lord. What you've done to us, Lord, let, us, let it flow through us into our community, to our churches, and beyond to the nations, Lord. Father, we repent to you. We come to you right now, and we ask that you'd forgive us for the times we're seeking our own glory. That our great aim in life is to make sure people see us the way we want them to see us. And Lord, we ask for forgiveness for the people that we neglect, the, the times that your spirit works in our heart to reach out, to call, to pull over to ask, to care for, to give when we close up our hearts because of our own selfish reasons or our own other reasons that we have. Father, we repent of these things and we come to you for, for in you there's forgiveness and there's transformation. And we ask for both forgiveness and transformation for your glory in Jesus' name, amen.